Please pray with me. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty. Everything in the heavens and on earth is yours, O Lord, and this is your kingdom. We adore you as the one who is over all things. Wealth and honor come from you alone. You rule over everything. Power and might are in your hand, and at your discretion people are made great and given strength, O God. We praise you and thank you for your glorious name. As we open your breathed out word, give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation so we might know you more fully. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might know the hope of your calling, the riches of your inheritance, and your incomparably great power toward those who believe in you. Oh God, teach us again and again that you are enough. Show us again and again your all-sufficient grace. This we humbly ask in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. How anxious are you today, my friend? Is your mind clouded with worry? Is your soul full of mental distress or uneasiness because of fear of danger or misfortune? Are you greatly worried, apprehensive, nervous? We are anxious people. Uncertainties about our government, our economy, our health, or our parenting skills make us anxious. Insecurities about our jobs, our places of service, what we wear, how we look, make us anxious. There are a lot of anxious people running around these days. But this is nothing new. The Bible has much to say about anxiety. Namely, do not be anxious. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus warns us against being anxious about the cares of this life. He says that for the child of God, even necessities like food and clothing are nothing to worry about. In our study this year, we meet two ordinary men who lived in extraordinary circumstances that would cause even the most confident person great anxiety. We meet Joshua and Peter. And as we study the books that bear their names, we uncover the antidote or the cure to anxiety. Be a Bethlehem. Write that down. Be a Bethlehem. In a tiny ancient town in Israel named Bethlehem, author Oswald Chambers says that God came as a baby, giving and entrusting himself to me. He expects my personal life to be a Bethlehem. Am I allowing my natural life to be slowly transformed by the indwelling life of the Son of God? God's ultimate purpose is that his Son might be exhibited in me. The antidote to anxiety is Emmanuel, God with us, God for us, God in us. The cure to anxiety is to be indwelt by God and to rely on his sufficiency. Utterly unable to prevail in their own strength, Joshua and Peter had to be Bethlehems. They had to learn to walk with God, be filled with his spirit, fully rely on his strength. 
through many ups and downs, they learned what you and I must also learn. God is enough. It sounds simple. God is enough. But how do we live like this is true? The fact is that God is enough. This is known as the doctrine of divine sufficiency. Theologian Thomas Ridgely says that this refers to God's sufficiency in and of himself, but also refers to God's sufficiency for us. Ridgely remarks that God's self-sufficiency opens itself up as a treasure trove in the presence of our needy condition. He is able to communicate as much blessedness to his creatures as he is pleased to make them capable of receiving. He is able not only to supply all their wants, but to do exceedingly above all that they ask or imagine. God is enough. Christians ought not be anxious. No matter your circumstances, God is enough. We will see this truth in Joshua as well as in First and Second Peter. Believers today are called to be Bethlehems. That is that they are called to house the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit of God. He is Emmanuel, God with us, God for us, and God in us. Those three phrases form our three divisions, God with us, God for us, and God in us. So our first division is God with us, Joshua 1.9. As we open the book of Joshua, or any book of the Bible, context is key. We should ask things like, who wrote it? When was it written? Why was it written? Who were the original readers? It's helpful also to understand the themes, the difficulties, and the way that a particular book of the Bible fits into the meta-narrative or the overarching message of the Bible, which is the redemption of sinners by God's Son, Jesus Christ. According to Jewish tradition, Joshua wrote most of the book of Joshua. However, it appears that others also contributed to it after Joshua's death. Who was Joshua? In the book of Exodus, God raised up a man named Moses to deliver his people, the Israelites, from slavery in Egypt. In a dramatic exit orchestrated by their covenant God, the nation of Israel was birthed, then nurtured, taught, and led by Moses and his brother Aaron. Joshua served as his second in command. They, the Israelites were to cross through the wilderness and enter into the land that God promised to give their ancestor Abraham, a land flowing with milk and honey, a prosperous land named Canaan. But Israel's rebellion against God soon after leaving Egypt earned them a 40-year stay in the wilderness. God decreed that an entire generation would not enter the promised land not even Moses and Aaron. There were two exceptions to that decree, Joshua and Caleb. These two men believed God despite the overwhelming task ahead of them. They knew God's strength was sufficient to conquer every enemy, even the giant Nephilim who lived in Canaan. They trusted God was enough. 
Before Moses died, he appointed and anointed Joshua as his successor to lead Israel into the promised land. Canaan, a land full of Canaanites, powerful, idolatrous, evil, and violent Canaanites. Their abominable practices included things like demon worship, temple prostitution, and human sacrifice. They lived in fortified cities surrounded by city walls, much like the city of Jericho we will study soon. Israel could not just walk in and take possession of this land. But throughout Joshua, God proves himself faithful to all his covenant promises. This is the theme of the book of Joshua. God is enough. He promised Israel that he would give them this land. Faced with huge obstacles to occupying the land, God promised that he alone could and would defeat their enemies and lay low every obstacle. However, he required their obedience to his commands. This includes commands that many modern readers have trouble grasping or understanding. Atheist Richard Dawkins describes Joshua as a text remarkable for the bloodthirsty massacres it records and the xenophobic relish with which it does so. He says good old Joshua didn't rest until they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. He continued his criticism by saying that the invasion of the promised land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacre of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. So how do we reconcile the violence recorded in Joshua with the God that we know and love? How do we reconcile it with the gospel message? We do that by seeing what God sees, by deepening our understanding of his covenant promises, and by grounding the context of this book in ancient practices, not modern practices. Commentator David Firth says that according to the Bible, the whole world and all its people belong to Yahweh. No single person holds an inalienable right to a certain piece of land. Rather, they hold it as tenants responsible to Yahweh. In other words, the sovereign Lord has the right to give his land to whomever he desires. And no one deserves such a gift from his hand. No one is worthy, not one. After God promised to give Abraham the land of Canaan, 400 years passed. Genesis 15, 16 says that this delay was because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. When their iniquity or their great sin reached completion, God's judgment fell. Through the violent expulsion of the Canaanites, he gave their land to the Israelites. He did so because he ordained that as a nation, Israel would live out his purposes stated in Genesis 12, 2 through 3. 
that through them all the people of the earth might be blessed. Israel was created to be a Bethlehem. God entered into covenant with them. He condescended or came down to live in their midst, first in the tabernacle, then in the temple. God called Israel to display his glory to the whole world, to be a light to the Gentiles. But his continuing presence with Israel depended on their obedience to the terms of their covenant with him. The Old Testament records Israel's repeated failure to do this. Because of her rebellion, Israel falls under God's judgment, the same kind of judgment poured out on the Canaanites. God is holy, holy, holy. He will not be mocked while he is exceedingly patient and merciful. He will not contend with the sin of mankind forever. He has, does, and will judge all sin. This points us straight to our dear Savior, Jesus Christ. God's wrath against our sin was poured out on him at the cross. He took the punishment for the sins of all mankind for all time. When you and I, by faith, trust in his atoning sacrifice on the cross for our own sin, we stand fully and forever justified or forgiven. Those who refuse God's saving grace stand condemned. They will pay the penalty for their sin, and that penalty is death and eternal separation from God. Have you trusted in Christ's perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sin? Or are you planning on paying that penalty yourself? Those are the only two choices. Choose to place your trust in Jesus Christ. His sacrifice is enough to wash away even the filthiest of your sins. Become a Bethlehem. You will discover that God's divine sufficiency is enough because his extraordinary power is always with his people. That's our first truth. God's divine sufficiency is enough because his extraordinary power is always with his people. Which insurmountable problem or challenge is weighing you down with anxiety right now? Do you have enough strength, enough courage, or enough faith to stand firm or endure what you are struggling with right now? Know this. God is enough. As you encounter and endure difficulties in your life, God is with you. He is faithful. He will not leave you or forsake you. He is sovereign. He is all-powerful. And most importantly, he loves you. His divine sufficiency is enough because his extraordinary power is always with his people. That, my friends, is enough. Joshua will illustrate this for us as we study his life. We will hear and hopefully we will learn to heed the words of Joshua 1.9 where God says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Anxiety be gone. God is with us. Us. 
And as we study First and Second Peter, we will see that God is not only with us, he is for us. Our second division is God for us, 1 Peter 5.10. Verse 1 of 1 Peter tells us that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, penned this epistle. Apostles were eyewitnesses of the resurrection who had been personally appointed by Christ to govern the early church, as well as to write with his authority. Some scholars argue against Peter as the author of First and Second Peter because they have such different writing styles in the original Greek. They also believe that the Greek is far more refined than Peter, a humble fisherman from Galilee, would use. However, this difficulty is resolved in 1 Peter 5.12. We are told that a man named Silvanus, or Silas, helped Peter write his letter. It is likely that Peter had the help of another secretary as he wrote 2 Peter, since the style is so very different. Peter's authorship of 2 Peter is supported in 2 Peter 1.14 when he says that his own imminent death was made clear to him by Jesus. This recalls John 21.18 where Jesus tells Peter, When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. John then remarks, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. In 2 Peter, Peter also claims to be an eyewitness to the transfiguration of Jesus, a claim backed up in the gospel accounts of that incredible event. Finally, Peter implies a connection between 1 and 2 Peter in 2 Peter 3.1, which says this is now the second letter that I am writing to you. Who was Peter? In the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, Peter was a man with a supersized personality, impetuous, impulsive. Today we would call him a man without filter. Peter was the brash, swashbuckling leader of Jesus's 12 disciples. The gospels also record Peter, the fisherman who immediately left everything to follow Jesus. Peter, the rock who stood face to face with Jesus and declared that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, the one with enough faith to get out of a boat, to walk on water, but then sink down in unbelief. Peter, the picture of unnecessary tents on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, the helplessly sleepy, failed prayer warrior in, gar in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, the bold one who rose up to defend Jesus with the sword. Peter, the coward who denied Jesus three times in one night. Peter, the pastor that Jesus entrusted with feeding and caring for his sheep. And Peter, the faithful preacher who could not help but speak about all Jesus had said and done. The book of Acts tells us that after Christ's ascension or return to his heavenly throne, Peter led and shepherded the church. But first, Peter became a Bethlehem on the day of Pentecost, the historic day when the Spirit of God descended and came to live in every true believer.
on that day and ever since every follower of jesus christ becomes a bethlehem the moment they receive jesus as their personal lord and savior have you done that yet oswald chambers says that just as our lord came into human history from outside it he must also come into me from outside have i allowed my personal human life to become a bethlehem for the son of god I cannot enter the realm of the kingdom of God unless I am born again from above by a birth totally unlike physical birth. John 3, 7 says you must be born again. This is not a command, but a fact based on the authority of God. The evidence of the new birth that is that I yield myself so completely to God that Christ is formed in me. And once Christ is formed in me, his nature immediately begins to work through me. Peter became a Bethlehem, first as he walked side by side with Jesus for three years. Then when Jesus came to live in him on the day of Pentecost. Peter's life shows us that God uses even the most unlikely people to advance his kingdom. This means that he can use you and me no matter how weak or inept we feel. The truth is, is that God is enough. When he calls his people to do his kingdom work, he equips them with everything needed to accomplish that work. Peter learned this valuable lesson from Jesus. As one of Jesus' most trusted companions, Peter witnessed the power and the majesty of God revealed in Jesus. A simple, uneducated fisherman, Peter became one of the most important leaders the church has ever known. He played a pivotal role in bringing the gospel beyond the Jewish community. Once afraid of being associated with Jesus in public, he later literally took up his cross and gave his life for Christ. Peter believed in the doctrine of divine sufficiency. Through an intimate relationship with Jesus, he came to know and understand that God is enough, even when faced with violent persecution and intense suffering. According to church tradition, Peter was killed by Roman Emperor Nero after the great fire of Rome, which he famously blamed Christians for starting. Legend also claims that Peter was crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy of dying the same death as Jesus. Peter's life shows us what it means to be a Bethlehem and to know that God is for us. Peter wrote 1 Peter sometime before the fire in Rome in AD 64, which occurred the same year he died. It was a circular letter intended to be passed to all the Christians living in what is modern-day Turkey. Peter wrote to Jewish Christians, members of the diaspora. These were Jews who were expelled from Jerusalem, from Israel, and scattered after they became Christians. First Peter addresses the danger the Christians of his day faced outside the church. Although the worst persecution happened after Peter died, these Christians were in, 
experiencing increasing levels of persecution under the exceedingly wicked Emperor Nero. Peter wrote to encourage them and to remind them of the hope that is theirs in Christ, even in the midst of suffering. His letter uses inclusive language that addresses the universal church with a capital C. This includes every believer throughout the ages. Peter continues to teach you and me of the glorious hope that is ours in Christ. This is the hope that sustains all suffering believers. Peter wrote 2 Peter just before he died to address dangers from within the church. Peter reminds his brothers and sisters in Christ to eagerly pursue holiness and to guard against false teachers. Counterfeit teachings were encouraging sexually immoral lifestyles. Destructive heresies rejected the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord, slandered celestial beings, and scoffed at the second coming of Christ. In both 1 and 2 Peter, Peter speaks of enduring the suffering that is common to all believers. He teaches us that believers can endure suffering because God is for us and he is enough. His divine sufficiency always works for our good and his glory. That's our second truth. God's divine sufficiency always works for our good and his glory. How are you suffering right now? What is causing your suffering? Is it your work for the kingdom of God? Is it because you are a Bethlehem? In 1 Peter 5.10, which is our theme verse for this year's study, the Amplified Version says that after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who imparts his blessing and favor, who called you to his own eternal glory in Christ, will himself complete, confirm, strengthen, and establish you, making you what you ought to be. Memorize 1 Peter 5.10. You and I, we can trust that God is enough. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. His divine sufficiency always works for our good and his glory. God is with us. God is for us. And God is in us. That is our last division, God in us. Are you living like a Bethlehem? If you are a genuine believer, Jesus Christ has been born in you. How do you live like one who is indwelt by God Almighty? How do you and I root ourselves in the fact that God is in us and God is enough? We spend time with him every day. This women's Bible study is designed to help you do just that. Commit right now to a daily unbreakable appointment with God. Begin every day by bowing your head in reverent awe, praising him for who he is. The deity of the 3D Bible study method helps you do that. Each lesson highlights one attribute of God or what we call the deity. Learning God's attributes 
helps us to get to know him better, to love him more deeply, to savor him, meditate on him. The second D of the three deep Bible study method is doctrine. Every week we highlight at least one doctrine found in the assigned scripture passage. Now do not let the word doctrine intimidate you. Doctrine simply means teaching, a body of beliefs or instruction. As you study scripture, we help you look for the teaching of the Bible because sound doctrine is vital to the Christian faith. There is a lot of unsound teaching in our world today. Are you able to detect it? How well do you know God's word? Do you know the doctrine or the teaching of the Bible about the Bible? God's word is found in the Holy Bible, meaning it is an amazing document that contains the very words of God. 1 Timothy Timothy 3, 16 through 17 tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Holy Spirit breathed out God's word to 40 different human authors who penned the 66 books that comprise the Bible. Because it is God-breathed, it is inerrant, without error in the original manuscripts. It is divine, revealing the very person of God and expressing the very mind of God. Because this is true, a document written over a period of 1,600 years by so many flawed humans is flawless and successfully tells one story, the story of redemption. A story drenched with the grace of God, which culminated in his gift of Jesus Christ. He is the one and only Son of God and the personification of the written and spoken Word of God. Each time you open his Word, begin with prayer, asking the author, the Holy Spirit, to illuminate his story. Look for his purpose in writing what you are studying. The book of Joshua highlights the incredible faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises. Joshua teaches us that God can be trusted and must be obeyed. He is an all-sufficient God. He is enough. First and second Peter were written to exhort suffering Christians to turn their eyes upon Jesus and keep them there. Peter is known as the apostle of hope. He exhorts us today to trust in the God who is enough. The third D of the three deep Bible study method is the diamond or the multifaceted gem that God wants you to see, know, and apply to your life. Our lessons are designed to help you keep your focus here. Your weekly lessons reveal and define God's deity or attributes and the assigned doctrine so that you can spend your time reflecting on how God shows you to apply his word to your daily life. An intellectual understanding of God's deity or attributes and the doctrines or teachings of the Bible is a necessary condition for the spiritual growth 
of Bethlehem's. The Holy Spirit illumines, then applies God's truth to our lives to transform us into the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Spend much time with God in his word. Immerse yourself in it. Enter his grand and glorious story. Look for how he reveals his glorious character. If you have not yet received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, let me assure you, he is the only one who can satisfy your soul. He alone is the enough that you have been searching for all your life. Spend much time with God. He is enough. He wants to transform you into all he created you to be. He is your enough. Because God's divine sufficiency accompanies the Holy Spirit's presence dwelling in you. That's our third truth. God's divine sufficiency accompanies the Holy Spirit's presence dwelling in you. How are you embracing the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit of God? Are you a Bethlehem that is open for business? or a shuttered ghost town. Now, I don't know who inspired who, but Oswald Chambers' visual of believers as Bethlehems fits perfectly with the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Listen for how the words of this song speak of Emmanuel, the with us, for us, and in us God. Some of the phrases are, God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. Or it says, where meek souls will receive him, still the dear Christ enters in. Or this, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. God lives in you, my friend. Slay your anxieties. Be a Bethlehem. God's divine sufficiency accompanies the Holy Spirit's presence that is living in you. What is making you anxious, my friend? The antidote to your anxiety is to be a Bethlehem. No matter your circumstances, God is enough. Oswald Chambers again writes, Since Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us, Bethlehem became a place housing the living Son of God. The same applies to us today. When we receive Jesus as our Savior, we are actually inviting deity or Father God into our houses, our bodies, our lives. We are the Bethlehems. Jesus lives and works in and through us and our houses will all belong to God the Father. You become a temple of the living God. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16 when he asks, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? O little town of Bethlehem, 
invite Emmanuel to fill you with all of himself. God is with us, for us, and in us. God is enough. A simple yet profound truth that you and I often have trouble believing. But it is true. God is enough. As we journey through the books of Joshua and First and Second Peter, look for how God convinces them and us that he is El Shaddai, the all-sufficient God. He is enough. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I pray that you would help us today to realize and to live our personal lives as Bethlehems. May the life of Christ be birthed in us, Holy Spirit. Be at work in us, transforming our natures into the life of your Son, Jesus, so that those around us will see that he is God and that he lives and rules in our lives. He is Emmanuel, the God who is with us, for us and in us. And he is enough. Amen and amen.